Now, I'm, I'm here today to talk about Pompey Elliot's letters, and in case there's anyone unfamiliar with Pompey Elliot, don't know how that could be, but <laughs> I should start with a very brief explanation of his significance. Pompey Elliot was a remarkable character, an outstanding leader and a household name. He was exceptional in intellect, genuineness and resolve. He was a commander of penetrating tactical grasp, awesome determination and no pretense or artifice. He went right through the war and his leadership was compelling from the outset. Pompey commanded the 7th Battalion at Gallipoli and the 15th Brigade at the Western Front where he was prominent in big battles such as Fromel, Polygon Wood and Villa Bretonna together with numerous other engagements, incidents and controversies. No Australian general was more revered by those he led or more famous outside his own command. He was Australia's most famous fighting general. What made him special was not just the achievements, awards and accolades, though there were plenty of each. His fame had as much to do with his character and personality with the style of his leadership as much as its results. Pompey was frank and forthright. His outspokenness often got him into trouble with his superiors. He was a fierce disciplinarian with an explosive temper. He was exuberant, wholehearted and utterly dedicated. And when shells and bullets were flying about, he was astonishingly brave. He's a wonderful subject for a biographer for heaps of reasons not just because he was such a significant and vibrant character. Another reason is that he expressed himself so vividly. He is irresistibly quotable. Take Lone Pine at Gallipoli, for example. Pompey and his 7th Battalion were in the thick of it at Lone Pine, where the Turks attacked repeatedly. Amid savage fighting, there were heavy casualties. No fewer than four of Pompey's men won the VC at Lone Pine, one after Pompey had sent him to a vulnerable spot where numerous others had been hit with these heartfelt words. Goodbye, Simons. I don't expect to see you again, but we must not lose that post. Now, Simons and his men... Simons and his... Simons and his men did retain control of that post. Simons was awarded the VC... And Pompey did see him again because P Simons survived Lone Pine, unlike many others in Pompey's battalion. Afterwards, Pompey described what it was like to be at Lone Pine in a private letter to a friend. Just a private letter to a friend. The weather was hot and the flies pestilential. When anyone speaks to you of the glory of war... Picture to yourself a narrow line of trenches, two and sometimes three deep with bodies, and think two of your best friends, for that is what these boys become by long association with you, mangled and torn beyond description by the bombs and bloated and blackened by decay and crawling with maggots. Live amongst this for days. This is war and such is glory, whatever the novelists may say. It's those Pompey characteristics I referred to earlier that make his letters so vivid and compelling. 
He was frank and forthright, not one for pretense or artifice, which he was no good at anyway. He arranged with his wife, Kate, a no-secrets pact for their wartime correspondence, and his letters to her are remarkable right through the war, including the climax of the war in 1918, a year when the AIF's role was far more significant than 1915, despite the fuss we make of Gallipoli. In April 1918, when there was widespread alarm that the Germans might win the war after their offensive had driven the, back fo- after, had driven the British back 40 miles, and Australian units, including Pompey's men, were rushed to the rescue, he wrote a stream of vivid letters to Kate describing his experiences. The AIF have hitherto accomplished nothing to be compared in importance with the work they have in hand just now. That's after three years of the most awful war there'd ever been. The AIF have hitherto accomplished nothing to be compared in importance with the work they have in hand just now. I was never so proud of being an Australian as I am today. The gallant bearing and joyous spirit of the men at the prospect of a fight thrills you through and through. You simply cannot despair or be downhearted. Whatever the odds against, you can feel their spirits rising the more the danger seems to threaten. It is glorious indeed to be with them. At this critical time, Pompey's brigade was directed to occupy a particular village but found it occupied by a British unit that should have vacated it with the result that his men had to wait outside in the rain. Here's what he wrote about that. The British officer in charge told me that his division had moved and until he got orders from them as to where he was to go, he could not move. I asked him where his division was. He did not know. I asked had he sent anyone out to find where it was. No. I then saw that the blighter had no intention to move, that they were very comfortable there and didn't want to move and would take mighty fine care they didn't get orders. So I told him right there and then a few things I'd found out about his division and its fighting and running powers and wound up by informing him that unless he and his officers and men were clear of the village by two o'clock, I would send in an escort of my own men and march them out by force as prisoners. (laughs) He got a nasty shock and was out of the village by the time fixed. He then had the hide to complain to his division of the way I had treated him. In reply, I let off some more steam and asked that a court of inquiry should investigate the conduct of the British officers and men in the village who had looted the whole place, including the chateau. That startled them a bit, and the matter was dropped like a hot spud. (laughs) Dropped like a hot spud, isn't that a... That was going to be my title for this. uh, Dropped like a hot spud, the letters of Pompey Elliot. That startled them a bit, and the matter was dropped like a hot spud. I expected a snub from Birdwood my usual portion from him, but nothing but a dead silence was the result. The fact is that I am at present so armed with written congratulations from the Lord knows who in the way of British generals that everyone concerned is mighty civil. The success of my brigade is due to the splendid officers and men I have got, and the only credit due to me is for discovering and pushing out the wretched duds I was given as battalion commanders 
in the beginning, whom everyone now admits to be duds, but when I said so first, I was just about crucified for it. They're good letters. <clears throat> Pompey also wrote extraordinary letters to his kids. He and Kate had two children, Violet and Neil, who were born in 1911 and 1912, so they were still toddlers when he went away to war. The remarkable letters Pompey wrote to his children illuminated his humanity and underlined how unfortunate it was for Violet and Neil that he was not around for the next five years that were such crucial formative years for them. He had a marvellous talent for communicating with children, as shown by this letter I'm about to read, which he sent from the Western Front at the end of 1916 to Neil, who was then four years of age. In it, he describes Western Front developments, including the unveiling of the latest military novelty, the tank, and refers to himself as Dida, which his young children called him. Surely no commander in any combatant nation in this war regularly described military developments at the Western Front like a bedtime story. <laughs> Since I wrote to you before, we got a lot of big wagons like traction engines and put guns in them and ran them bumpity bump up against the old Kaiser's wall and knocked a great big hole in it and caught thousands and thousands of the Kaiser's naughty soldier men and we killed a lot of them. And more we put in jail so they couldn't be naughty anymore. <laughs> but then it started to rain and rain and snow and hail. <clears throat> and the ground got all boggy and the wagons got stuck in the mud. And the old Kaiser has such heaps and heaps of soldiers that he sent up a lot more and thinned them out where the wall wasn't broken and started to build another big wall to stop us going any further. It is very, very cold here. And the Jack Frost here is not a nice Jack Frost who just pinches your fingers so you can run to a fire to warm them, but a great big bitey Jack Frost. And he pinches the toes and fingers of some of Didar's poor soldiers so terribly that he pinches them right off. Isn't that terrible? Now the naughty old Kaiser burnt down every little house all around here and Didar's soldiers have to sleep out in the mud or dig holes in the ground like rabbits to sleep in. And all the trees are blown to pieces by the big guns and there's no wood to make fires, and Didar's soldiers have to make fires of coal, and the wagons are all stuck in the mud, so Didar's soldiers have to carry it through all the mud, and everything they eat and wear has to be carried too. And Didar's soldiers get so dreadfully tired, they can hardly work or walk at all. Isn't that old Kaiser a naughty old man to cause all this trouble? <laughs> now, goodbye, dear little laddie. Give dear old mum a kiss and tell her Dida's coming home soon and that you will grow up soon and you won't let any old Kaiser come near her. <clears throat> but it was not just Pompey's letters to his family. He was profoundly moved by what his men endured at the Gallipoli Landing, for example, and described it with lyrical intensity in a letter to an acquaintance, just an acquaintance, three years later, three years on. As they approached the shore, a machine gun opened, the bullets singing by. When they got the range, men crumpled up where they sat riddled through and through. The boat sides were pierced, the water squirted in, but the boats still kept on unwavering from her course, the rowers with their backs to the fire, never missing a stroke. 
albeit they felt each one in, in imagination in the small of the back, till they fell back dead and another snatched the oar from their dying grasp. A little red-headed laddie named MacArthur, scarcely more than 18, was shot through the femoral artery and the blood spurted from his thigh as the water squirted into the boat. A sergeant attempted to bind it up. It's no use, sergeant, he cried. I'm done. Yet he rode on until he swooned from loss of blood and a comrade took his place. The water gained in the boat and flowed around them, its blue turning a ghastly red with the blood of the wounded and dying. Still the hellish hail of fire continued. It did not cease when the boat grounded but swept over them, still piercing the writhing bodies through and through. Oh, those leaden minutes of agony, how slowly, how dreadfully they passed by. I found that letter in this building while I had a National Library Fellowship about 30 years ago. So thanks again to the National Library for the fellowship. It was hard to choose which Pompey letters to highlight today because there are so many vivid examples. I decided to end with Polygon Wood, the big battle in September 1917 when he was the key figure in turning defeat into victory and his men attained both their own objectives and the objectives of the struggling British brigade alongside, despite the fact that his brother was fatally wounded during the battle. They brought the news to me when I was tied to my office directing the fight and I could not go to him though they said he was dying. I hope never to have such an experience again. Pompey was wrung out after Polygon Wood. He told Kate he didn't feel like writing, even to her. But he was sufficiently perturbed by something Kate had mentioned in a recent letter to scrawl this hasty note to young Neil, who was now five. That is, he, he didn't feel like writing, but he had to make an exception for something that was really important. My dear little laddie, Mum has been telling me that you were so sorry for being naughty that you wished you were a little girl like Violet. But if you ever changed to a little girl, Didar and Mum would not have any little boy at all. And Mum and Didar would be dreadfully sad if they had no dear, wee, mischiefy thing like our laddie. Dear little chap, Mum and Didar love you so much that they don't mind very much when you are naughty. Of course Mum has to scold you because if she didn't you wouldn't know what was naughty and wrong to do. Didar was sad when he heard that the little lad wanted to be changed to a girl. He loves his little laddie so much that he was sorry the poor little chap was not happy. So don't you worry a bit old chap. You just try your best to be good and if you forget sometimes and Mum has to spank you, just be a soldier and try not to cry very much and you will know that Mum and Didi love you just the same even when they spank you. Spanking isn't so bad if you feel quite sure that dear old Mum loves you just the same. <laughs> dear little laddie, I wish I was with you now to take you up on my knee and comfort you and tell you Mum and Dida will always love you. Pompey's letters are wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.